The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, to Richard. Thank you for your what you offered this uh, a little while ago and your statement about the benefit yesterday. Uh, I was only able to be here for a very short time of it, but I was very happy that IMC could uh, offer itself. Uh, we had a free Saturday to uh, inside out to uh, so they could have a benefit here. And I, one of the organizers is Jacques Verdun, who done years of work in the prison. And uh, in exchanges with him earlier in the week, uh, he said that um, he expressed his feeling that uh, it felt to him quite appropriate that his benefit was happening on Saturday, the, the kind of the national day of of uh, demonstrations and, uh, concerning the uh, Trayvon Martin case. Because the kind of work that Inside Out work kind of addresses one way or the other those kinds of issues. So I was very happy he was here. And um, now, one of the remarkable things that happened yesterday was the uh, speech by President Obama about uh, his response or his thoughts about uh, the verdict for Trayvon Martin's case. And um, one of the many remarkable things about that speech, but in terms of IMC, uh, he seemed to suggest in the speech that one of the honest places where discussions can take place in our country around issues of uh, race relationships is in families, in places of worship, and in workplaces, in churches. And I think that qualifies, we qualify for that. <laughs> and um, so, is, are, we, are we being called upon to also participate in this national dialogue and what's our role in that is a, que- a question that uh, I have as a teacher here. What, what's our situations like? And it's certainly uh, very prominent in my heart the degree of suffering that goes on in our society uh, because of the way that people are treated. Uh, because of racial differences, uh, people get seen certain ways, treated certain ways, in all kinds of different directions. And it's been going on for a long time uh, in our country, but it's been going on for millennia. Uh, Even the Buddha had to address these issues in his time. And uh, uh, just like Obama said that, um, he said something in his speech, something like, um, when are we going to stop judging people by the color of their skin and instead use the quality of their character? as a judgment, as a way of evaluating. And that could come right out of the mouth of the Buddha. Uh, he said pretty much the same thing in his own words, that uh, the racial categories, the, the caste categories of his time uh, that he was living with were not the categories that he wanted to see to evaluate a person, but rather to evaluate uh, people by their ethical behavior, uh, the goodness of their heart and how that, uh, they behaved. And he said very emphatically that in his, time, in his area, in ancient India, that uh, people of any caste was equally capable of um, doing an unethical thing and equally capable of doing ethical things. And so it's the equal capacity for ethics which he wanted to use to look at people. And certainly uh, he considered to be some of the highest people or the most worthy, worthwhile people 
those who lived ethical lives. And so, you know, so what does it mean to live ethically in a culture, society, where there are tremendous uh, disparities among different people in our society? And what, do we, what does it mean to live ethically in a society where uh, uh, racial characteristics are still used to limit people and, um, and uh, you know, create conditions of inequality and injustice? Um, and how, do, how does a community like IMC participate in this discussion? How do we get involved? I don't have an answer to these questions. I wish I did. And I've been thinking about them for a long time. The, um, uh, I do feel that one of the contributions uh, we could make in all this is uh, a contribution which uh, I've, uh, people who have suffered tremendous injustice around uh, racial inequality and other forms of discrimination have found in Buddhist practice. And they found that their anger, their pain, their, their, uh, their suffering, their fear, their anxiety that they've lived in, that they've kind of enculturated with, maybe over many generations even, can be addressed by the practices that we do here in our center or other places, that the practice of sitting mindfully, uh, practices of compassion, practices of uh, insight and mindfulness are extremely powerful, they report, to help, sh- help them to shed their anger, their anxiety, their hurt, so that they can see in fresh ways, so they cannot carry that legacy with them. And I know that there are people who have suffered these inequalities and racial stigmatizations who uh, uh, are waiting for the rest of society to do the same. Uh, people sometimes have been up against the edge uh, in our society around these kinds of issues, feel the sting of it, the pain of it. Sting is probably too mild of a word. Uh, the pain of it uh, so acutely that um, they have to deal with it. And so when the men, that uh, the f- uh, former inmates that uh, came here to IMC yesterday to share their practice of mindfulness with us, uh, some of these men... Um, you know, it was life-saving for them to, and to, be in, to do this mindfulness practice and do the training that the Insight, Insight uh, Prison Project offered them in San Quentin. One man that I met yesterday here had spent 33 years in San Quentin. And that's a long time. He said it was been out now for over years. So it's quite hard to make the transition. Society has changed a lot since 1978 or something. 1980. And... Um, the, um, so there are other people for whom it's really consequential to do this kind of work. And then there's people for whom the, the work of mindfulness is consequential in their lives for other reasons, but not for the reasons of social inequality and discrimination that goes on in our society. And so those, that part of our life, maybe we don't address and don't look at, we have other things to deal with. Uh, other sufferings, other kind of ways of looking at what practice is doing for us. But I do know that there are people who are in our society who are waiting for, especially uh, the white populations of our society, to get on with it. Uh, look at uh, how this operates in your own life. And it's quite remarkable how many people I meet of, uh, who um, you know, could be considered non-Caucasian um, uh, who are uh, who are a little bit um, I don't know a little bit even discouraged or dismayed or um, 
by uh, well-meaning white people. Uh, that uh, there's all these good white people uh, who have good intentions, but who don't understand uh, the degree to which some of these issues uh, are part of a wider social system and uh, cultural systems that go on. And so even though uh, people are well-meaning and um, uh, we are still participating in this wider cultural matrix that, uh, that uh, I think is important to consider when we consider the situation like Trayvon Martin's um, killing. Um, I think that it's maybe not so much to the point to spend a lot of time analyzing and reanalyzing and judging the verdict and what actually happened in his case. It's very hard to look at, I mean, to kind of consider all the different factors. But it, it, hap- it happened within a wider context, in such a wider context that uh, that killing um, resonated very deeply in many, many people's lives who feel like it could happen to them easily. People who feel like they can't walk through neighborhoods without being concerned that they'll be stopped and maybe, uh, you know, their life put in danger and uh, just because of the color of their skin. And so it kind of speaks this huge kind of fault line, fissure in American society that uh, it's been here for a long time. Uh, I think one of the most dramatic fault lines in our country is that between um, uh, African Americans and much of the rest of the population, Native Americans and much of the rest of the population. These are societies that have been living with legacy and history of inequality for so long that uh, it's hard for it's hard to kind of when the whole system is kind of set up in such a way and the whole the way that society and geography and so many issues uh, keep them segregated or keep them keep they keep being seen through certain filters and eyes. So, what do we do? What the, what does any of us do? What does the practice have to offer? And one of the things I think that one of the things that I feel very strongly that the practice has to offer for all of us is an ability to deconstruct the constructs, the conventional ideas, the ideas in which we live under. And it's been said repeatedly that uh, uh, racism is, uh, or the category of race, looking at people, uh, is a social construct. It, It doesn't exist in nature by itself naturally, but rather it's somewhat of an arbitrary construct that was created a little bit for its own purposes. Some people say it was created in order to discriminate. And, um, and in, the, in that it's a social construct, it's not part of nature, that then we can uh, uh, look at the constructing mind. We can look at how the mind constructs ideas of other, constructs ideas of self, constructs ideas of who is in, who is out, who is safe, who is not safe, who we like, who we don't like. And these are all constructs of the mind. And to sit and become still enough with strong enough mindfulness to to do two things, to let the constructing mind, the thinking mind, the mind that has ideas and evaluations and judgments, um, have it all fall away, is a very powerful experience. I did not know, I probably still don't know, but I did not know the extent to which 
my mind operated through assumptions, views, uh, uh, conditioning uh, of ideas uh, from my society and my life experience until I started to meditate, until I started going on retreat. And my mind got really, really quiet. And I could see and just shedding away, falling away, falling away. And I was no longer seeing through the filter of these kinds of ideas. And it's, a, it's, a, um, it's very humbling and very powerful to watch and see that, you know, how our mind actually operates. And so to let it get quiet. And one of the associations I have with uh, being on retreat with other people is how it's, what it's like to be in a room of people meditating still and to some degree or other have uh, all of us have a lot of the ordinary constructs of self and other and people and categories of people and they kind of fall away and to be able to kind of sense and feel each other be in the space together without the usual ways in which we uh, compare ourselves or measure ourselves with others and so it kind of a little I don't know if this is a good example but I've been told that in Japan, which is a, which is a, a class-conscious cu- culture with lots of different gradations of class and everything, um, that uh, when, they go, when they go to the public bathhouse, the saunas, um, all those distinctions fall away when everyone's there naked together. You know, it doesn't matter if you're, you know, there you meet equally. So I think of retreats in this kind of meditation where the mind gets quiet enough uh, and we don't, it's hard to, we don't want to, we don't carry with us anymore the judgments, the stories, the ideas of self and others because the mind gets so simple. There's a kind of equality, we see everyone equally, we hopefully, or approach that way to some degree. That's the hope at least. And so this idea of kind of shedding that and being able to see with fresher eyes, to see uh, with, uh, with um, clear eyes, and clear eyes, what I mean by that, is with eyes that don't have the fil- all these filters of ideas and categories on top of it, but just see someone for their heart, see someone as a human being, see the Buddha nature of someone, see the beauty of people for what they are uh, directly rather than seeing them through the lens of so many ideas that we can carry with us. Even the, uh, even the lens that someone is suffering sometimes is uh, oppressive to people. So it's uh, quite something not to have any lens. Uh, just just to meet someone and be with someone in that clarity. It's quite something to meet yourself that way. That's part of the why it's so liberating uh, to do deep meditation practice is because many of us have internalized a lot of ideas about ourselves. Uh, there's, there's a phenomenon called internalized oppression, that people who are oppressed in all kinds of ways um, uh, internalize it and believe that for themselves. This must be actually the case. Sometimes there's kind of self-hate um, because of this internalization. And so to sit quietly and learn to shed all these things, let them fall away, fall away, fall away, and to see oneself in fresh eyes, to be able to see oneself independent of all these ideas, and in doing that, hopefully see the beauty of our own hearts, see the beauty of our minds, see the dignity and the value of ourselves uh, is a powerful thing to do. The, um, but the other thing, I think, so that, that's one of, that's one, that's kind of, I think, part of the strength of our tradition, meditation, letting go, dropping down. But is that enough? Uh, just to be, it kind of lends itself, to, if that's all it is, the kind of passivity. 
and um, you know, it's okay. You know, it's, uh, you know, I've done my work. You know, I'm, I'm peaceful. I'm a good person now, <laughs> and uh, and uh, so forth. When um, you know, uh, IMC started many years ago in Menlo Park, before me, before I even joined it. And it started as a small sitting group in 1986, I think. And, um, and I joined and uh, I was asked to join it to kind of start teaching for it in 1990. And there were 12, 15 people who came. But I could imagine that uh, as with other sitting groups, that sometimes they start with just a few people. Two or three people can start a sitting group. And people, uh, or one person starts a sitting group at home themselves, right? A sitting group for themselves. And let's start with one person. That one person sits down and is suffering, is struggling, or, and then somehow they feel that meditation is relevant for their lives. And so they start sitting, maybe in their bedroom, and they find it meaningful. And so they find it meaningful that they go find books on meditation practice, and they read about it. They don't, find, look, for book, they don't look for books on social policy, but they look books on meditation practice to help them, support them in this personal process they're doing. And then at some point they decide, you know, it's good to sit with other people, it's supportive of me, so let me go find a friend to sit with. And then they share among themselves what it's like to sit and meditate in this personal process they're doing. And then they find other friends, and then they form a sitting group, and other people come. And then we have IMC in, back in Palo Alto days, and then it slowly grew from 12 to 15 people to 40 people, and we moved to a bigger place. And then we grew to be 100 people and we decided, well, we need to have a second sitting. So we started a Thursday evening. And then we kept growing and we, uh, we you know, we're, we're bursting here in this little room we have. I think we should start a Sunday morning program. So we started a Sunday program and then we started a children's program and then we did one day sittings and we did this and, and retreats. And, and eventually we decided, you know, we need to incorporate and maybe think about having our own place. And at some point, we bought this building we're sitting in now. And then it keeps growing, growing. And then we bought a retreat center. Now we have that. And so it keeps growing. So the, I tell you the story because it started off maybe with this, this kind of made-up fantasy idea with one person meditating because of his or her own suffering. At what point does a community become large enough, a church you know, in American parlance, become large enough that it's appropriate to not, o- not only focus on personal inner practice. At what point do we open up and look around and have our practice and our teachings and our community uh, look up and consider some of the wider issues of our society? So, I mean, there's a small example back in 1995 when we were still in this in the process of growing slowly. I remember there was someone who came to me and said, Gil, there's a, uh, there are some of us who are getting old. And we would like to have a group, support group, of the elderly, seniors, to talk a lo- look at um, pra- the practice and the process of aging. So it was kind of a little bit looking a little bit wider the issues and what goes on. And, um, and then there were some of us who started a chaplaincy program here in order to be able to reach out and and touch the lives of support people uh, who are suffering beyond the walls of IMC. So at what point do we look beyond? And so at what point do we as a community look at the issues of race and uh, 
racial inequality and injustice in our society uh, is an open question. I don't know the answer to that. We've tried over many years, probably for the last 15 years, uh, periodically to, as a community to look at these issues uh, in different kinds of ways. Um, but I never felt they were particularly successful. And so, you know, I don't know all the reasons for why it wasn't particularly successful. I think probably one, one reason not so successful is that a um, fair number of people who come here are here for the personal practice. That's what they want. If, we, you, know, if, if you came here for the next year, all, we, all I did was Dharma talks on social issues, <laughs> I bet the numbers would shrink because that's not what people are looking for, what they need, where they're suffering, how their suffering is addressed. But what's the balance between looking at this? The president says churches should, maybe should look at these issues and discuss them because it's an honest place to discuss. And where do we fit into this? So that's a long introduction to the next points. I said that our practice offers two things. It offers our ability to deconstruct and experience ourselves free of the constructs of ideas. Very powerful and liberating to do that. Um, and then uh, the other thing it can do is once we do that to some degree, the mindfulness practice and, this, and the degree of stillness that we have becomes a very important vantage point from which to watch us reconstruct our ideas, our thoughts, to watch how our mind operates. Because when we leave our meditation and walk out in the street, our, our thinking mind, our idea-making mind is going to kick in sooner or later. And probably most of you appreciate that it's sooner rather than later. <laughs> and, uh, and so to leave your mindfulness at IMC and not watch means that those ideas and assumptions that you put down here come back and operate unconsciously when you, when you leave. But an important part of the practice is to watch the creation of these things and to, uh, and to watch and see and be able to recognize that when you look at someone, that you are, you might be constructing in your mind an evaluation, a judgment, a view, a prejudice towards that person. And um, the um, and so the question is, and so what do you do when you, when you can see it? Uh, if we don't see it, what's very easy is that when we see that person. We assume, we don't think of our judgments as judgments, we think it's the truth. That's what it is. So if you're walking down the street and someone's walking towards you, and for whatever reason, that, that characteristics of that person are such that you associate that with a dangerous person. That person is dangerous. If you can watch the, the construct, the arising of thinking, the thought, that person's dangerous arise in your mind. If you can watch it arise, that gives you the opportunity to put a question mark at the end of it. Is that true? If you don't watch the arising of it, it's very easy then to believe that person actually is not safe for me. Make sense? So the ability to watch the arising of thoughts, ideas, and feelings gives us the ability to question, investigate, and look more carefully is it really accurate? So we can give something a second look. I love the word that the expression respect. I like to think of respect meaning uh, give it a second look. To respect, to respectacle, to once again to look. 
And so look and see, is that really the case? And maybe it's not going to be the case. Maybe you'll get different information if you look more carefully and you'll see maybe the person isn't uh, dangerous. Um, it can go the other way too, of, of course. We can assume that someone is safe and, and then they turn out to be not being. But to watch the, construct, the rising and constructing mind is very important. So I, I'll give you an example of me, how I did it yesterday. I, I hope it's not a, I hope it's okay example. Uh, it's part of the risk of uh, talking about these kinds of issues. Is it's so easy to, you know, you know I, I don't understand. I don't, know, I don't know how to talk about this or how to address these issues or even myself in relationship to them. So, but I'll offer this. Um, so we had this uh, event here yesterday and um, there were a, a, a bunch of men who had spent a long time in San Quentin. 33 years in San Quentin, uh, chances are he was a lifer. And uh, chances, I think that was before three strikes you're outlaw, so it's pretty serious crime to stay in prison for 33 years. And um, so I came down here yesterday morning early uh, because I wanted to make sure that someone was here to receive them when they came, but also to uh, unlock for them so they can come and set up. And, but I couldn't stay very long because uh, I'm a single dad this week and I have two kids to go home and take care of and drive around. And so I came down here with my younger son in the car. I said, stay in the car and I'll go do what I... And it was, there was only one person standing here when I came. And I introduced myself to him and it was one of the uh, people that... One of the former inmates who'd been invited to come be part of the program. And so... Um, he was the only one here. I came to open, unlock the door. And I was going to leave it unlocked and leave. So I washed my mind. You're laughing. That says something already. So as it would be for anybody... I would say, you know, if I unlock the, if I unlock this door and leave leave this person alone in our building, someone I don't know, is this okay? That seems a reasonable question. I do ask that question. It happens from time to time. But I also know that I periodically open the door and let someone in and left who I don't know. And usually I say to them, "You're in charge." <laughs> you know, there's no one else here. And uh, and so I, I looked at this man. And I said, here, I'm going to unlock the door. Let me show you how it works here. And, um, and you're in charge. And as I, as, I, as I was saying that, or as I was thinking of saying that, I wondered, I wonder how often this man receives that level of trust. You know, I knew that he, I knew that he told me he was a in, former inmate. You know, and I can imagine that his experience in the world is saying, you know, I, I'm just released from San Quentin after all these years that um, more common experience is distrust. Is this person safe? So I thought that one of... So I could watch all these, these kinds of concerns. Not that I would... I didn't feel like he was unsafe, but I could watch my mind create these... You know, have these kinds of evaluations, thoughts, kind of take in the picture this way. And whether it was uh, appropriate to think this way or not, I don't know, but I thought, well, maybe this is... This is uh, I do this for other people... I'll, let me do it for him. Maybe for him, it's even a good thing. It's a gift to him 
to feel that he's trusted this way and not to, uh, you know, feel like I can't let you in because, you know, I'm sure he would pick up, you know, something. So this is an example of me watching my mind, right, and trying to, trying to be responsible for it and, and uh, trying to take it into account with the person that I was meeting. Um, so those are the two, uh, two things I think this practice can do. It can help us to deconstruct the judgments and prejudices and biases we have. Obama had a great expression in his speech, was um, uh, something about um, the process of wringing out our biases. So I think we talk about shedding. He talks about wringing them out, maybe because for some people it's, you know, it's harder work or more painful. And so this deconstructing process. And then, uh, and that often means we have to look very honestly about at ourselves. And the greater our ability to look at ourselves honestly, um, the greater, our, uh, greater is our ability to shed, to deconstruct. And so do we put ourselves in situations where we can look at ourselves honestly? If we live in, uh, safe, play it safe, uh, and in our society, for many people, uh, privileged people play it safe. They live in their own kind of communities and don't really see what's going on in other communities. Uh, if we uh, live safe, then we don't get to see how some of our minds operate. And in fact, uh, what I've seen is that I've seen very diligent, very uh, sincere and dedicated Buddhist practitioners do really deep and important work at shedding, letting go of attachment, shedding go of bias on retreat. But because they don't put themselves in situations where certain thoughts, latent thoughts, get activated, they actually don't see that part of themselves. And they might, I've known people who think, well, I'm a good person, I'm a wonderful person, because they never have occasion to see that they have these quirky sides. And so uh, the willingness to wake up, the willingness to look around, to enter into society, to connect to places that don't feel safe, to look at some of the issues which are uncomfortable, and to be slow in defending oneself, justifying oneself. Be slow, because I think often there's a kind of, oh, you know, I'm not that way. But to look. There's all these people who've been saying, some people have been saying, including the president a year ago, I think, you know, that I, you know, you know, we're all Trayvon Martin. Some people can say it. Some people say it, and it's, it's painful to hear. But how many people have said that they're Zimmerman? Mm-hmm. How many people have identified with him, that part of themselves? And I think it goes hand in hand. If you do one, you should do the other. Why? Why? Why separate them out? This is one of the great contributions I, I felt I'd benefited from Thich Nhat Hanh, who made this point very eloquently in a poem called Call Me By My True Names. That, uh, you, know, we, you know, we have a tendency to want to be the good people, but to actually see that we're, we have, we're, we have, we're, we're everybody. We're, and to have our heart big enough and open enough to be willing to take in everyone or see everyone or recognize ourselves in everyone I think then the process of deconstruction, the process of freedom and liberation stands a better chance. 
And then I think, uh, I believe that as we do this deconstructing process, it isn't just a mental thing of letting go of ideas. It opens up the wellsprings of our hearts, of our compassion, of our willingness to kind of feel and sense uh, heart to heart other people. And then it becomes even more important to continue this process. As our heart opens up, it becomes more important to do it because as our heart opens up, we don't want to be part of a system even that is contributing to suffering in our society. And then, um, and so then it becomes even more important to start looking at more and more. What, what does our mind do? How do we think? What are our biases? So I'll end with giving you uh, one little practice, since we're into mindfulness practice, this personal practice thing, to give you one little practice that can uh, maybe support you in this endeavor. And that is any time that you find yourself uncomfortable with anybody else, individual or group of people, any time that you're uncomfortable, that's a time to watch what's going on in your mind and to understand it deeply, reflect on it. Look at your beliefs, your ideas, your constructs. Look what's going on inside of you. Take responsibility for it. And I'm not saying that you are responsible for all the things that go on, but if you want to get a window into, you know, into doing this deeper work in our, that our whole society needs, um, use the mindfulness cue. Use the mindfulness cue of uh, feeling uncomfortable. And the more you, and the, and the better you get at it, the more you'll pick up the subtle places where you get uncomfortable. Stop and look at that. Look at that more deeply. So, um, I'm of, now right now I'm of two minds. We have five minutes left. I'm, we could either take a few minutes of questions or comments. That's one mind. The other mind is I don't dare. <laughs> which mind should get? Which mind should I give in to? <clears throat> Would anybody like to say? Since that's the uncomfortable route, we'll go that way. Yes. Richard. One of the people in the event yesterday is someone who goes to San Quentin as part of this program because she's a victim. Uh, Her mother was killed. And part of this Inside Out program is for the folks in San Quentin who have victimized people to talk to someone who's been victimized. And I'm going to share this because she shared this openly yesterday. Um, Her grandfather was in the SS in Germany and was responsible for many people dying. And there's no boundary to where the violence is. It's just woven in our culture, in our lives, in our history. And there's nobody who's, who's, you know... Who's clean? I think it's good to feel we're all in it together. In this world, this world, this society. To appreciate each other, all together. 
no inside, no outside. Yes. Green light. Inside. Inside. The battery is dead. to make a comment about what you talked about when you let the man in and uh, when we were doing our when we were doing our prison work um, which is still going on there are people in this sangha who go down to um, Soledad and work and teach meditation down there and uh, so the program started in about 2002 and I definitely felt over and over again that the place that we were able to actually reach inmates and with any kind of authenticity was where we established that connection of trust, that they recognized that we were treating them as human beings, not treating them as a category of, of untrustworthy people. Mm-hmm. I, I really felt that over and over again. Yeah. Every year I take a group of our chaplaincy students to San Quentin. And it's, uh, you know, we have this year-long Buddhist chaplaincy training program. And, and a num- uh, quite a number of our students say that the, it's the most significant and powerful part of the whole training. It's to go spend a day with the inmates at San Quentin. And uh, mostly, so, some of the inmates actually, that we were here yesterday, former inmates, I'd met in San Quentin uh, <clears throat> on some of these visits some year, many years ago. And now they're out. And uh, it's... Uh, I mean, we kind of see what we get. To, what we, some of the people we encounter there are the cream of the crop of people who have uh, taken this practice really far and have been transformed in really dramatic ways. It's really inspiring to see what's possible. And um, I wish I could take you all to San Quentin. <laughs> okay. So um, thank you all for today and. Uh, if anything, I said I feel tender. You know, I don't know. I don't know how to have this kind of talk and this kind of conversation. So, if I said anything that uh, is disturbing or or is offensive to anyone, I apologize. And, and uh, you could let me know, and I'll try to do better. Learn from that. Thank you.